Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Questions That Matter. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 12th, 2021. Do you ever feel ashamed of your faith? Do you hesitate to identify as a Christian in your workplace, on social media, in the company of your classmates, your neighbors, your extended family? I imply no judgment in the question because my own uncomfortable answer is yes. Yes, I often struggle with shame when it comes to my faith. There are contexts in which I hesitate to identify as a follower of Jesus. I can name more than one instance in which I've hidden or minimized the essential role Christianity plays in my life. So I come to this week's gospel, read the pointed words of Jesus to his followers, and cringe. Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ouch. Perhaps you're thinking, yes, but we have legitimate reasons to be ashamed. We should be ashamed of the terrible things Christians have done and continue to do in the name of Jesus. The shadow side of the faith is our legacy, too. How can we align ourselves with its horrors? I agree 100%. The Church, both historic and contemporary, has much to repent of and much to amend. The blood we've shed, the lies we've preached, the voices we've silenced, the powers we've abused, we can't pretend that these profoundly consequential sins don't affect us. But the heart of this week's lectionary is not about the Church. It's not about the failings of Christians. It's about Jesus, Jesus himself. What are we going to do about Jesus? The reading begins with Jesus asking his disciples a straightforward question. Who do people say that I am? Or, what's the word on the street? What assumptions are people making about me? Are you hearing any gossip, any theories? Give me the scoop. Apparently, the disciples are hearing plenty because they jump in with answers. People say you're John the Baptist. Other people say you're Elijah. Actually, a lot of folks think you're one of the prophets. I'm speculating here, but I wonder if the disciples also offer Jesus some of the harsher answers they've picked up during their travels. Some people say you're a fraud, a heretic, a demon, a madman. Some people say you're Mary's illegitimate kid. Some folks think you're a traitor to Rome. Actually, a lot of people don't care who you are, they just don't like you. Interestingly, Jesus neither affirms nor denies their answers. He simply listens, allowing the disciples to offer up everything they think they know based on other people's investigations, speculations, and assumptions, as if to say, this is an okay place to begin. This is how faith evolves. We name what we've heard. We examine what we've inherited. We parrot back the certainties others have handed to us. Again, it's an okay place to begin, but it's not an okay place to stay. So Jesus follows up with another question. Who do you say that I am? I'm guessing there's a long silence in the wake of the second question. I imagine the disciples shuffle their feet, cough, avoid eye contact with Jesus. Maybe they cast anxious glances at each other, each one hoping someone else will answer. And I imagine Jesus standing patiently and vulnerably in their midst through this long silence, waiting to hear what his closest friends will say about him. Can they differentiate between the talk on the street and the witness of their own hearts? 
Are they willing to stake their lives on what they've experienced firsthand of Jesus? Do they really know him, trust him, love him? With his second question, Jesus asks his followers to put aside other people's interpretations and articulate their own. It's not enough, he implies, to know the creeds, the traditions, the theologies, the abstractions. It's not sufficient to rely on other people's answers. At some point, our faith must become personal, intimate, invested. Description must yield to confession. Who do you say that I am? What happens next to the story brings us back full circle to the question we started with. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Cue Peter. Bold, reckless, impetuous Peter. When the silence becomes unbearable, he throws himself forward and tells Jesus exactly who he thinks Jesus is. You are the Messiah. A perfect A-plus answer. The whole gospel story in a nutshell, the truth with a capital T. Right? Wrong, or at least not quite. Because here the story Mark tells gets very weird. Instead of praising Peter's prophetic answer, Jesus tells him to keep his mouth shut and launches into a grim description of the suffering and death that await him in Jerusalem. He paints a picture so bleak, so upsetting, and so counterintuitive, Peter pulls him aside and tells him to knock it off. But Peter's rebuke hits a nerve so raw, Jesus turns and rebukes him in return. What's more, he does so using words that shock us still, 2,000 years later. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Poor Peter. Where does he go wrong? Well, he gets the title right. The answer, the identity, you are the Messiah. But when Jesus challenges Peter's understanding of what Messiahship actually entails, Peter cringes in embarrassment, in disbelief, in shame, as in, no, that's not what I signed up for. That's not how I want my Messiah to behave. Torture? Crucifixion? Humiliation? What kind of Messiah chooses to give up, to surrender, to die? You want me to associate myself with you and lose everything? Peter's profession of faith, impressive though it sounds, signals the mere beginning of his spiritual journey, not its end. As soon as Peter thinks he has Jesus nailed down, Jesus shuts him up, challenges what he knows, and nudges him back to the starting line. Yes, I am the Messiah. No, you have no idea what Messiah means. In fact, you're not even ready to know what Messiah means. You can barely tolerate my talking about it. You still want to mold me into your image of Messiahship. You still want to be in control. You still idolize your own comfort. You're ashamed to identify with the Savior I really am. You want someone more glamorous, more impressive, more aligned with your own definitions of power and greatness. Peter, there's so much more for you to learn. As I reflect on Peter's very human, very earnest but misguided response in the story, I'm left wondering what kind of Messiah I want. I know the right answers to Jesus' question about his identity. Who do I say Jesus is? The Son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Christ. But do I have my own agenda when it comes to what Messiahship means? An agenda shaped around my own comfort, my own lifestyle, my own priorities and preferences. Do I look away in embarrassment when God challenges that agenda? What about you? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Would you prefer a Messiah who aligns more easily with your social milieu, 
your political norms, your cultural expectations, your spiritual goals? Is the Jesus you follow a Jesus who dislikes the same people you dislike, values the same comforts you value, cherishes the same life goals you cherish? Or is he the Jesus who once made Peter flinch in shame, the Jesus of humility and surrender, self-denial and sacrifice, death and resurrection? Who we think Jesus is will determine how far we'll go in following him how large or tiny a cross we'll bear in his name, how fearlessly we'll profess him to a world that needs the love and healing he offers, how humbly we'll repent of the church's failures and begin again to be Christ's hands and feet to those in need, how boldly we'll dedicate ourselves to sharing the paradoxical gospel of the cross, the grave, and the empty tomb. The people in your life, who do they say Jesus is? Do you know? Do you ask? You yourself, who do you say Jesus is? Do you know? Do you ask? And finally, the Jesus you profess to know, are you ashamed of him and of his words? If yes, why? Is he deserving of that shame? And if he isn't, what will it take to turn your shame into joy, surrender, obedience, and love? For books this week, we review Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World by Simon Winchester. This is a review by Brad Keister. Simon Winchester is a best-selling author whose previous two dozen books include Krakatoa, The Map That Changed the World, and The Professor and the Madman. In Land, he explores a subject that is never far from the headlines, be it local or global. Land is one of the few things on the earth that is permanent, though with sea levels rising, even that statement will have a growing list of exceptions, as well as limited. So a sense of ownership can convey both security and freedom. In this comprehensive book, Winchester traces the numerous and various concepts of land and ownership back in time, complete with concrete and detailed examples along the way. For many centuries, a key value of land has been its potential for food production, as populations expanded and or their land lost its fertility, people inevitably sought to expand their borders, eventually leading to conflicts as much of the sought-after property was already occupied by someone else. Such a scenario has been repeated countless times, notably with the treatment of Native Americans in the United States and the Incas by Spanish conquistadors. In more recent times, land has come to acquire other strategic advantages beyond food, but the quest for ownership and the violence that has often accompanied it has continued unabated. Winchester goes back even further to try and answer the question. Who was the original owner of a piece of land? Using his home country of Great Britain as a case study where the notion of landed gentry goes back for centuries, he finds that the means of acquisition for those landed gentry are often dubious at best. After all, as people began to inhabit this planet, no one really owned anything. Native Americans regard modern ideas of ownership as a foreign concept, but instead view the land as a gift to be maintained forever. And with that perspective comes a notion of stewardship as a responsibility for the land's caretakers. In the West, land carries the emphasis upon legal titles and property law. That enables owners to borrow money based upon a confidence of ownership. But it also allows owners to view possession as a license to exploit the land however one wishes. 
Winchester strikes a hopeful note at the end of his book with examples of restoration, be it land restored to a people dispossessed or the reversal of decades of environmental damage. An excellent companion to this book is Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, which examines a specifically American view of land and the exploitation of its original residents in greater detail. For films this week, Dan reviews Saving Notre Dame. On April 15, 2019, people around the world watched in horror at the live television coverage of the catastrophic fire that ravaged the 13th century Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Before it was over, the majestic spire had collapsed, most of the roof was destroyed, and its walls severely damaged. Amazingly, much of the interior was spared, despite horrible damage from the toxic lead smoke. The French President Emmanuel Macron vowed that they would rebuild the cathedral in five years, and within a week, over a billion euros had been pledged for that purpose, with the delicious controversy surrounding the fundraising. This PBS Nova documentary, season 47, episode 8, will be a little outdated by the time this review was published, but it nonetheless explains the Herculean efforts now being undertaken by conservators, scientists, engineers, architects, art historians, glass experts, and tradespeople to restore the iconic building to its 800-year-old glory. I was reminded how the cathedral architecture with its glorious stained glass debunks the idea that the Middle Ages were dark and the startling contrast between the 13th century architecture and the latest in digital technologies now being used to restore the cathedral. After watching this film, you can appreciate Macron's eagerness for restoration, but you also realize that this is a project that might take decades to finish, rather than a mere five years. But it will surely be worth it, however long it takes. Lastly, for poetry this week, Today, by Mary Oliver. Today I'm flying low, and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must, the bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten, and so forth. But I'm taking the day off, quiet as a feather. I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors into the temple. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 12th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.